Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we talk with creative Mississippians. I'm your host, Maria Zarang, Folk and Traditional Arts Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today I'm talking with Dr. J. Janice Coleman. J. Janice is an English professor at Alcorn State University, and she's a quilter who makes work inspired by the Delta landscape in our hometown of Mound Bayou, Mississippi. Thanks so much for being here, J. Janice. It's great to have you. I appreciate you coming on. How are you doing today? I'm fine, and thank you for inviting me, Maria. All right. Well, let's get started in this interview at the beginning. Uh, you're okay. a native of Mound Bayou, Mississippi. Why yes. don't you tell us about your hometown? And can you give some context about you know, like the history of Mound Bayou for those who may not be familiar? Okay. Well, Mound Bayou was founded in, 19, in 1887 by former slaves uh, who had come from Vicksburg from the uh, Joseph Davis plantation. And uh, the town is now 135 years old, and um, that's where I was born. I won't tell you exactly what year I was born, <laughs> but it was a year um, in which Faulkner died. It was a year in which James Meredith integrated Ole Miss. It was a year in which... Fannie Hamer, Fannie Lou Hamer of Ruleville came out of those cotton fields. So I'm going to let you figure that much out. Okay. But that's where I was born. That's where I was reared. Yeah. And um, I, I think the most important thing that I have to say about Mount Bayou is um, the foundation. It's about the foundation that the town was built on. Montgomery and Green, as I said, came from Vicksburg. They had these followers with them. Uh, some of them, when they saw what they were facing, the landscape, the, the the water, the mosquitoes, the wild animals, just the uncultivated land, some of them got discouraged and wanted to go back to Vicksburg. But Isaiah T. Montgomery said, he reminded them that, you know, you've been doing this work for white folks all of your lives. Now you have this opportunity to do this for do something for yourselves. And from what I've read, the idea of that caught the minds of some of them, and they got to work, and they cleared the land, and uh, a few years later, I inhabited. Nice. Well, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I encourage our listeners to check out the history of Mound Bayou. Um, it's a, a really fascinating uh, story, a great part of Mississippi history. Um, now, why don't you tell me a little bit about your family? Uh, you're a creative and artist and maker. Did Do you come from a tradition of sewing or artists in your family? Uh, I do. Um, my mother was a seamstress. Uh, there were many. We lived in a really—now, Mount Bayou was a rather rural town, and we lived in an even more rural part of that. But there were a lot of women in my community who were sewing. Uh, my mother was a seamstress. My grandmother Alice was a seamstress. I had my Aunt Thelma who was a seamstress. My Aunt Mary was a seamstress. There were a lot of seamstresses around me, and most of them were sewing from scraps. Mm. And so I just kind of picked it up. 
uh, where I was living, there weren't stores around where I could buy fabric or things like that, but uh, I guess I wasn't missing what I never had. The thing is, I could always find some fabrics, an old sheet, some old clothes, something. And so that's how I began sewing from scraps, and I've been sewing from scraps ever since. Yeah, I want to talk about that, and we'll come back to that. But uh, first, what age were you when you started to learn sewing, and was it your mother and grandmother that were kind of showing you? Um, mostly my mother. Um, I don't know if she was if she was uh, showing me so much then, because when I first started, I was making what I, what, what I call these pockets or purses. I would take a, uh, a piece of fabric and fold it into a square or a rectangle and sew up those three sides. So I have one side open, and that was a purse, Maria. Yeah. Or a pocket. Yeah, and also an easy project that you could do probably in one or two sittings, huh? Yes. Yeah. But mm. but I was sewing by hand. Mm -hmm. But uh, you've seen a lot of my work. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so you probably have noticed that, or maybe you haven't, that everything is still square or rectangular. Yes. So I'm still making pockets. Yeah. They've just gotten bigger. Yeah. Right. <laughs> just expanded on that. I love that. Yeah. Yes. But the square or the rectangle is, is, is versatile enough mm -hmm. because inside of a square or a rectangle, you can put anything. You can put people. You can put circles. You can put anything. But the square and the rectangle, those, those are my shapes. That's all I need. Yeah, you know, now that you mention that, you know, I have seen a lot of your work, and it, it definitely mm -hmm. makes sense now. Well, I have an that. exhibit yeah. called Quilts and Other Quadrilaterals, and that's because everything in it is square or rectangular. And so that will include the, or, or will accommodate the cotton sacks, the quilts, the table runners, pillows, pillowcases, everything. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I... I definitely want to get into your work during this interview because you have a great body of work. But um, I want to kind of talk to you about a quilt that you made uh, called Quilt from Grandma Alice's Scraps, mm -hmm. which is a tribute to your grandmother. She was 102 when yes. she passed away. Can you talk about that quilt and maybe the impact of your grandmother on your work? Okay. Well, she was... Uh, she she was really my step-grandmother, but a grandmother nevertheless. Mm -hmm. She was the only one I knew. And uh, she sold from scraps a lot. When she died in November of 2010, I believe it was, uh, no, when she went to the hospital, she got sick. Well, I didn't rush home to see her um, because I, I figured people at home would do that. Uh, I went to my attic. And I got a box of scraps that she had given me years earlier, I think in about 1995, or maybe my Aunt Ethel, her daughter, gave them to me. But when she got sick and went to the hospital for the first time, and she was over 100, mm -hmm. I was thinking she might not be coming back. I need to build or make a tribute to her. So I got her fabric scraps out, and I started making this quilt as a tribute. And within that quilt... Um, I have ten pinwheel, ten pinwheels, which is a traditional American quilt pattern, and I made, I sold in one pinwheel for every decade of her life. So that sack has ten pinwheels, and I wanted to include those pinwheels because 
I was thinking about her life and thinking, for 100 years, she must have had a lot of ups and downs and twists and turns, good times, bad times. But through it all, like that pinwheel, Grandma Alice kept on turning. Yeah, and also yes, and also in that same quilt, there's a pattern called "Rob Peter to Pay Paul." You've probably heard that (laughs) phrase before. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was thinking about Grandma Alice, and the fact that at times uh, she wouldn't have had a lot of money, and so there must have been many times when she robbed Peter to pay Paul, and you know, as conventional wisdom goes. If you rob Peter to pay Paul, Paul will always be your friend. But I just wanted to put that pattern into the quilt, too. Yeah. And I stitched the the history of her family on the back. Um, I have her first son, whom she brought from St. Francis via Louisiana with her. Uh, and I had asked her in 95, I said, why Why did you come to Mount Bayou and never go back to St. Francis, Francis via and she told me that uh, she had come to Mount Bayou to pick cotton for my grandfather, Stafford Coleman. And she said, and I liked it so much that I stayed. So I, I sold that into the quilt, and then I sold her children. Uh, the son, Charles, whom she brought from St. Francisville with her, mm-hmm. she married my grandfather. And so then she had seven stepchildren, one of whom was my father, Woodrow Coleman, and uh, his siblings, and um, and then she had three more children with this husband, Stafford, Ethel, Jay, and Violet, and then she took in a, uh, I guess it was a grandchild, yes. Uh, she took in a child, so all together she had 11 children, and I stitched their names on the back of the quilt under all her children. Yeah, I love that. I was actually looking at that quilt uh, yesterday, and it's really amazing on the back. Yeah, you have this whole family history, and um, when we were talking about it, you had wrote on a on a note saying that, you know, there are many ways to pass down family history from one generation to another, and stitching stories of the lives of others is just one creative way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an example of that. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Well, let me say this. Did you uh, notice all of those buttons on the straps of that quilt? All the buttons? You, buttons. Um, you might not have noticed, yeah, but they're on the straps. There are antique buttons and there are contemporary buttons. I sewed a button, uh, was it 34 buttons on each strap mm-hmm. to represent each year of her life. Oh, wow. Yes. So, But a quilt, you asked me to talk a little bit more about the family history. Yeah. A quilt uh, can be a holder of a family history. That quilt is certainly a holder of family history. So a quilt, it can can do more um, than—you can do more with it than spread it it across a bed Mm -hmm. and lie under it. That quilt was not made for the bed, though. That quilt right. was made for hanging. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's a really, really interesting uh, quilt. And I want to get back to scrap fabrics. You had mentioned that several times. And you still use—most of your work is done in scrap still today. And Yes, that's my preference. Okay. And why is that important to you to continue to work with scraps? Well, when I'm working with scraps, I'm also recycling. 
Mm-hmm. I don't. I hardly ever go and buy fabric. You may remember a few years ago. You probably saw the quilt that's uh, twenty feet long. It's twenty feet long and it's four feet wide. Mm-hmm. It's heavy, and um, it, it's made with scraps because it is a cotton sack. The top of it is. Um, I use fall fabrics um, to make all the quilt patterns and things for the top. On the back side, I think I spent most of the summer of 2017 taking apart denim jeans um, to use. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Now, do people give you a lot of fabric because they know your work, <laughs> or is this stuff that you have to collect just by yourself? It's, it's interesting that you ask me that because <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I have stopped taking in bags of fabrics uh-huh. from, peop- from people because I yeah. have so many. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is only so much recycling that I can do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't even look at those fabrics when they try to offer because I'm going to see something that I want. So I just don't even look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have so many bags of scrap scrap fabrics. Mm, oh, interesting. Now, do you work in just kind of a few colors, like neutral colors, or, or do you... Because I was looking at your work, and mm-hmm. it seems like there's a lot of, you know, like blues and, you know, blacks, whites. Not not so much black. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't use a lot of black. But, yeah. Um, I use a variety of colors. It just depends on mm-hmm. the, it just depends on the work. Yeah, and what you have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I I guess we can wrap up. Uh, we'll we'll come back to where we started, Mount Bayou. Okay. Do you still have family that lives in Mount Bayou? Do you ever go and visit often? I'm there. Um, I'm I'm in Mount Bayou still on a regular basis. Uh, most often I go on Sundays because I'm going to attend. Uh, my church, Pleasant Green, West mm-hmm. Mountain Bayou. But I do have a brother, Andre or Ted, who still lives there. And um, But I have many, many other relatives. Mm-hmm. There are many cousins there. Yeah. Yeah. That That's our land. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The family came from, uh, our forefathers came from uh, Uniontown, Alabama. Mm-hmm. They got tired of sharecropping. So you say, who would, who would, who would leave? Alabama to come to Mississippi, but yeah. they had heard of this all-black town in the Delta, right? And they decided that they were going to go there and uh, cast their lot, and that's what they did. Yeah. So we have been in Mount Bayou since uh, 1904, 1905. Oh wow! And, and that's not long after it was founded, right? And everybody, mm. everybody knows the Colmans as the farmers from out west. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Maria Zerang, Folk and Traditional Arts Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I am talking with quilter and professor Jay Janice Coleman. All right. Uh, well, Jay Janice, let's yes. talk more about your sewing output, especially I want to get into your collection of quilted cotton sacks. So why don't you explain and describe to our listeners what the cotton sacks are, you know, kind of what they look like and um, how you've made them. Okay. Um, I made my first full-length cotton sack in, I believe it was, I'm almost sure it was 2009. It's called Blues, Browns, and Buttons. You might have seen that in my exhibit. I had always wanted to make a cotton sack. Um, um, using quilt patterns mm-hmm. and um, so that was the first one and it, I made it in July and August of 2009 I remember that because I was trying to finish it before school started mm-hmm. but when school started I had not finished uh, so I went to class the first day I didn't have a syllabus because I, I felt like I couldn't do anything else until I finished that cotton sack. But I was very near the end. When I put the cotton sack on display some months later at Alcorn, uh, one of my students said, you know, I think that's the sack that held up the syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it did, and it, and indeed it was. On the back of that cotton sack, I have Jay Janice's cotton sack, July, August, 2009. I just really wanted to, it was just something that was in my head I'd always wanted to do. Now, um, I think it was uh, Ralph Ellison who said, I recognize no dichotomy, no difference between art and protest. So I was thinking, what what was I protesting when I made this cotton sack? You know, I wasn't conscious of a protest. Mm -hmm. But then when I thought about it, I was. I was protesting the idea of the regular cotton sacks, the drabness, the colorless, colorlessness, the functionality of those other cotton, the ones that we were using in the cotton fields. Yeah. And that's what I was protesting mm-hmm. and trying to create what John Keats might have called a thing of beauty. Mm. A thing of beauty, he said, is a joy forever. And so I considered that cotton sack a thing of beauty. A cotton sack doesn't have to be all drab. It doesn't even have to be something for the outside, something to put cotton in. It depends on how you make it. Yeah. You can bring it in, you can domesticate it, you can put it on display. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, and they're really beautiful. And, and that's the one that I... Yeah, no, go ahead. That's mm-hmm. the one that I use most often in the classroom, mm-hmm. uh, especially when I teach a story like Alice Walker's Everyday Use. And the narrator is talking about these two quilt patterns, the walk around the mountain and the long star quilt pattern. I don't have those patterns in that cotton sack, but I think my young students uh, probably don't know what a what a quilt pattern is. Mm -hmm. So I always take that one to class to show them. This is what Alice Walker means when she says, when she talks about quilt patterns. So from the sack, 
I point out the pinwheel quilt pattern. I point out perhaps the nine patch quilt pattern. Oh, I love that. Well, that kind of brings me to my next question, you know, because mm-hmm. we've described the cotton sacks and you talk about how you use it as an act of protest, but also in the classroom. And so I just want to read you this quote uh, that I have from you that I just love. You said, my cotton sacks do not go to the fields. They go to colleges and conferences and other indoor events where they spark conversations about Mississippi's culture and heritage, of which art is an integral part. Can you talk about some of the conversations that you've had presenting your cotton sacks in these spaces? Well, I'm going to go back to my students at Alcorn first. Mm-hmm. When I first showed the um, blues, browns, and buttons, one student said, and again, we were discussing Alice Walker's everyday use. Mm-hmm. One student said, and I remember that she was from Clarksdale, she said, but, but, but why would you make a cotton sack? And I really had to think about that because who gets up in the morning and says, I think I make a cotton sack today, <laughs> but but I did. Yeah, yeah. She just it was it was the idea of the cotton sack. So I you know I had to explain to her to let her know. Now this sack is not like the ones that we were using in the cotton field, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I would just take it from there. But now uh, other people, especially older black people, mm-hmm. and especially if they were sharecropping. They they don't get that at all. They always say to me, almost invariably, um, haven't you had enough of those cotton fields? Shoot, you ought to be trying to get away from that stuff. But for me, the cotton field was not an unpleasant place. And maybe that was because we were on our own land. There was nobody standing over us, um, ordering us to pick a certain amount today, uh, per day, we were on our parents' land. Mm. And so for us, it was very much a social occasion. Yeah. Um, that's where everybody went every day. And in the fields, we could talk and laugh or dance or whatever, uh, especially if we didn't have hired help. Many days we had hired help, but sometimes we didn't. But um, let me tell you this. A few years ago, yeah. just a few years ago, I saw one of my high school classmates whom I had not seen since we graduated from Kennedy High in Mount Bayou. She had come home to a funeral. And someone said, there she is over there. And I said, where? And when I saw her, I went over to her. Now, keep in mind, I hadn't seen her in about 30, 30 years. And the first, I said, hi, how are you? And she spoke. And the first thing she, I said, I said to her, the last time I saw you, we were in the cotton fields together. And she said, girl, we had some good times in those cotton fields. I, I said, yeah. And she said, and in the cucumber fields, too. I said, well, I don't know about that. So <laughs> even for her, it was not an unpleasant, it was not an unpleasant place. It was not an un, it was it was a social gathering, but it wasn't unpleasant yeah. for us. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like the cotton sacks, they kind of work in um, with the ones that you make, you know, as art objects. They kind of call back those memories and they work on so many levels, you know, um, as protests, like you said. But why don't you talk about just so people can get an idea Mm -hmm. 
maybe the BB King blues cotton sack or the giant magic carpet cotton sack. Can you just describe what it looks like on the front and back so people can kind of get a visual as they're listening? I wish I had a visual. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the BB King cotton sack. Now, I was not a big BB King fan. I'd never Mm -hmm. been to a blues festival in my life. I don't think I had. But when he died in 2015, Mm -hmm. uh, my niece texted me and said, BB King has died. Well, we had been talking about that because. Uh, she knew that I had gone to that B.B. King Museum in Indianola several times, and I had taken some students there, too. St- um, in the fall of—must have been 2014, mm-hmm. I took three students. One was from Crystal Springs. One was from Canada. One was from Jamaica. They didn't know anything about what a cotton field looked like. They didn't—well, the, maybe the one from Crystal Springs, but the other two certainly didn't. They didn't know what flat land was. They didn't know what a shotgun house was. And so we were getting ready to work on a project where they needed to have an understanding of those things. And so during that time, I was um, making trips to the museum. And so people who knew that I had spent a considerable amount of time there uh, were texting and calling and expressing their condolences. And uh, but I got up that morning. So my well, let me let me back up. My niece texted me at three nineteen. She said, "BB King has died." Uh, I looked at my phone. I read the message. I went back to sleep. But when I got up at five something, the idea for that cotton sack was in my head. It was pretty much made. Wow! And I had to go back to the attic again and get my boxes of scraps and pull out all the blue ones, light oh. blues, dark blues print blues and I started putting that cotton sack together and so um, the top of the sack is uh, well there are three different patterns on the top of that Mm -hmm. sack and one is the nine patch and so I use that that's one of my favorite quilt patterns too I use that to capture the nine decades of B.B. King's life I think he was he was almost 90 when he died Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's why that particular pattern is important. And another one was uh, the log cabin. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking about where B.B. King would have been living when he was a boy um, in Berkeley and other places around the Delta, around Indianola. He probably, as a sharecropper, he probably would have been living in shanties, shotguns or something like that. So that's why I used the log cabin pattern and then there's always the pinwheel. Mm-hmm. You know, B.B. King sings about bad times, but he also sings about good times and he says, let the good times roll. And so it was important for me to include that pinwheel because again, like my grandma Alice, through the good and the bad, B.B. King kept on turning. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. There's so much symbolism in each of your patterns on that quilt and, you know, every quilt you make, probably. Um, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so the front is um, like quilt patterns on the front, you know, mm-hmm. different types of quilt patterns. And then on the back, what do you have on the back of that cotton sack? I, I, I just had to think about that. What What is on the back of that cotton sack? But there are graphics. Mm-hmm. Um, one is B.B. King's guitar. Lucille, mm-hmm. there is a log cabin 
house on the back. Don't you have some uh, quotes from him or lyrics or song, some song lyrics on the back? Yes, mm-hmm. I do. Uh, I know the thrill is gone. Uh-huh, yeah. It's, it's on there. That's the top panel. And then in the middle, I have what, what uh, President Barack Obama said when B.B. King died. Yeah. He said something like, the blues has lost a legend. And the Delta has lost a king. I know I don't have that right, yeah. but it's something like that. Yeah, that's kind of the gist. And of in it. that third panel, which is so important, at near the bottom, mm-hmm. there is a manufacturing information. I stitched that it was made by me, uh, J. Janice Coleman. I have a portrait of myself in my blues afro mm-hmm. on there, and I have where it was made, partly in Mound Bayou and partly in Vicksburg, and that was made. In the year that he died, 2015. Yeah. Yeah, I love um, how you do that. Do you do that on all of your work? Well, like the bigger pieces that you don't just kind of hand stitch your name. You also hand stitch a portrait of yourself. And I just love that it kind of shows who you are and it puts a face to the maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just love that, especially when you think about passing a quilt down to the subsequent generations that, you know, they have your face on it, too, you know? <laughs> Vanity. Yeah. <laughs> well, it gives a, you know, direct connection. Like, this person made this with their hands. I just, yeah, I think it's great. Um, I find myself stitching myself, you know, more and more into my works. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think uh, we have about, yeah, a minute. um why don't we talk a little bit about the um, maybe uh, what other work do you have? The Barbie. We, we, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't talk about the uh, 20 foot long cotton oh, sack. Oh, the magic carpet cotton sack. Why don't you just kind of briefly talk about yeah. that real quick? I won't go into a lot of details yeah. about that because I made that sack in response to uh, an employment issue. Mm. Um, yeah, so I won't talk too much about that. But. Um, but it's a huge work, yeah, oh, 20 yes, feet long. Yes. How long did it take you to do that? Uh, most of 2017, certainly wow. all summer, but it was weekend work. Weekend work uh, from January until the summer, and then in the summer, I, like I said, I was taking jeans apart to make the back of that sack. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah it's a dramatic work. It's yeah, it should hold a bale of cotton. Yeah, it's it a sight It doesn't to travel see. much because right. it is so heavy. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Maria Zerang from the Mississippi Arts Commission, and I am talking with quilter and English professor J. Janice Coleman. All right. Well, we're back from our break, so I want to talk to you a little—I want to continue our conversation from that last segment, and I want to talk to you about a quote that I found on your website, and I want to read this. So this is something that you said. So if you see nothing when you pass through the Delta, I challenge you to look a little harder, to try to share my vision. As Toni Morrison once said, invisible things are not necessarily not there. Yes, I see the Delta's pathos and poverty when I am in the region, but I also see art forms and the potential to create everlastingly from that. I I love this quote, and I want to know if you could talk more about it and how the Delta inspires all of your work. Okay. Well, uh, we have already established this, that that's where I was born and bred, Um but in a unique part of it, because I was in Mount Bayou, when I was growing up, I never went to those other towns. Um, and I don't know if that was by my parents' design or what, but Cleveland was 10 miles away. I, I don't ever recall going to Cleveland when I was uh, growing up. We went to Shelby every now and then, and I don't recall ever being in another one of those Delta towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they thought if we just stayed in Mount Bayou, we would be safe and out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's really the way it was. Uh, so I went to school, I went to church, and I went to the fields. Uh, that was about it. But anyway, now, so many years later, um, and in these last few years, I've been spending a lot of time Uh, talking to, interviewing people in the Delta, and I'm learning more about sharecropping. And that was a system I wasn't much familiar with, Mm -hmm. aside from what has been written in literature. So I had a textbook understanding of it. But talking with people, I've learned a lot about what it meant to sharecrop. And so now when I'm driving to and through the Delta, most of what I see is land, is land space, mm-hmm. but I also see the things that are not there based on what I know about what used to be there. Uh, I still see all those shotgun houses standing there. Mm-hmm. I still see people working that land, and sometimes I feel so sad when I think about the people who were sharecropping on the land. Um, who have left Mount, who left, who left the Delta and went to other places, urban areas? What happens inside of them when they come back home, for example, to a funeral, mm-hmm. and they can't go on that land and say, "This is where I grew up." You know, there's got to be a great disconnect there. If they go on the land, they will be trespassing, and I just. I feel sorry for them. Yeah. Um, to because they can't go back and revisit a space that they inhabited for so long. Perhaps all they can do is point outside of a car window and say, "We lived about right in here somewhere." That's sad. Yeah. And a lot of your work is kind of connected to memory. Do you think kind of what you're talking about now, does that come in through your work with, you know, thinking about memories of places and things? Yes, and that's kind of what got me to make the B.B. King cotton Mm -hmm. sack. 
uh, like I said, I was not um, a blues fanatic. Mm -hmm. But when he died, I wanted to pay tribute to him as a fellow Mississippi artisan. Yeah. He understood the Delta. Yeah. That that was that was his landscape. And so the the main reason that I made that contact was that in his honor was that he was from there. Mm-hmm. That's when he was in rags, but he moved away and he became rich. And um Fannie Lou Hamer, she's standing in line for a cotton sack, too. Oh, wow. Yes, she uh-huh. is. Well, you'll have to tell us when that one is finished. <laughs> yes. I haven't started it yet. Yeah. But uh, I like her story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I always say about her, and this would definitely be on the cotton sack. Mm-hmm. She died where I was born mm-hmm. at Taborian Hospital right. in Mound Bayou. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, um, yeah, and that's what I think is so powerful about your work is that it is like a a tangible creation of a memory, especially how you have so much meaning in the mm-hmm. patterns, and then you have that text that you hand-stitch that gives some of the context behind, you know, that story you're trying to tell in your quilt. So, um, yeah, just mm-hmm. really fascinating. I like the Delta. My students yeah. have even told me that when they drive to through the Delta, they think about slave times. Mm. And some people say there is nothing there. But like I said, you have to you have to understand the Delta. So I, I, I get what they say. Right. Yeah. But I don't ever get tired of driving through there because I see so much, so much of what is not there. I see it. Mm-hmm. The people are gone. The houses are gone. The blood, the sweat, the tears, they're gone from that place. Mm-hmm. But I still see those things. Right. Yeah, and that comes through in your work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I kind of want to transition to talk about your work as an English professor because we've been mentioning it uh, as we introduce you. So let's talk about that work. You're an English professor at Alcorn State. Can mm-hmm. you just tell us how you got into that and what your work looks like at Alcorn? Oh, uh, well, well, first of all, Maria, let me thank you for coming to Alcorn State uh, <laughs> yeah. back in April. Uh, yeah. I think it was. It was, yeah, it was uh, April. Uh-huh. I think it was April 22nd or April 28th. Yeah. Uh-huh. And for your persistence or insisting on our doing that program, you may remember it got canceled a yeah. number of times. Three times. Because of yeah. the weather or because of scheduling. And I was ready to just, just give up because we were coming near the end of the semester. Uh-huh. But you insisted. And, uh, <laughs> and and it went on. But I've been, uh, I've been teaching at Alcorn for... Um, I started teaching there when I was very young. This was uh, in 1987, and I taught there as an instructor for seven years. And after that, uh, I went to the University of Mississippi, and I got a doctorate, and I returned um, in 2000. Mm -hmm. And so I've been there ever since. And um, it's been a lot of fun. I like teaching at Alcorn. Um, It's an opportunity for me to not only teach, but to perform, you know, teaching is mm-hmm. always a performance, right. and that's my audience. And so often I'm bringing in works from my sewing arts collection to use in the classroom. Um, just last week, I came in as Phoenix Jackson. Oh, so, yeah. 
Well, That's the protagonist, and Eudora Welch is a worn path. And um, Well, yeah, let's talk about that. Talk about that ensemble that you made based on the Phoenix Jackson character. Okay. Well, I often, uh, sometimes, so often, something about literature would just capture my attention, and then I'll say, well, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to make this. Uh, I'm going to get back to Phoenix in a moment. Mm-hmm. But that's what I was thinking about when I made that um, Beloved quilt mm-hmm. that was inspired by Toni Morrison's Beloved. I read the novel in 2004, or rather reread it. And I said, I don't know why that quilt didn't stand out to me before, Baby Suggs' quilt. Mm-hmm. But when I, I guess it was the moment. Because when I read it that time, I said, I'm going to make this quilt. The quilt in the story, in the novel, has no pattern, but it does say, the narrator tells us that it was made out of black, brown, navy, and gray wool. And so I got those things from a haberdashery in Houston. Hmm. I used um, uh, fabric samples, books of fabric samples of black, brown, navy, and gray wool. Wow. Because it was a men's store. Yeah. And uh, and made that quilt. And so in that quilt, I retell the story or certain aspects of the story of Beloved. May I mention one quilt pattern on there? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Talk about the well, quilt. Well, you might have seen, um, not on the quilt, but on the, uh, the bag, there was a sack that I was supposed to store the quilt in. And the sack became a separate project, and the quilt has never made it inside the bag. Mm. But on the bag, there is a nine-patch quilt hanging on a clothesline. And that's a story in itself. That's Baby Suggs. She's in the center. And then the eight blocks around it, they represent her eight children. Mm. Now, in the novel, um, they got separated. They're separated. But on the quilt, you know, as, as the seamstress, the quilter, I had the power to reunite that family because that's all Baby Suggs wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so in that nine-patch pattern, they are all together again. A seamstress can do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now on that. So, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Adrian, oh no, you, you, said, go, you, okay. you go ahead. All right. Um, on the beloved quilt, there's also those two orange blocks, right? And that has to do with the story. It's been a while right. since I've uh, read that. But can you talk about that? What that means for the story and why you wanted to add those in? The, the quilt. So the quilt is quilt is made from these dark drab colors. But in the novel, Baby Suck says she was always calling for the quilt mm-hmm. because she says those two bright orange squares. Oh, that's right. Were the only bright spots in her life. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so, I remember that now. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's pretty much the same concept mm-hmm. as. Uh, good times, bad times. Yeah. No matter how bad your life is, you're going to have, I hope, some good times. Yeah. And so it was important for me to include that. Well, uh, yeah, it's so interesting to kind of 
bring something that's written in a novel and bring it to life and actually make the quilt from the novel. I love that. I spent a lot of time on that quilt. Now, I'm sure you probably, (laughs) oh, yeah. More than three years. Do you teach, beloved, in your classes? I haven't taught it in a long time. I don't think I've taught it but one time. Really? Now, Mm -hmm. had you made the quilt by then? Um. I don't think so, but the quilt has been on display oh, okay. at All Corn a number of times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People know it. Oh, yeah. I love that. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. if you teach it again, how cool would that be to have your students, like, right. really see, you know, it really brings the novel to life, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with the sack, you know, the sack is um, full of images from the novel. Mm-hmm. There is the tree named Brother. There are the five sweet home men. There is the dog. His name was Hero Boy. Uh, there are several other images on the quilt. I didn't feel like I chose those images at all, but they chose me because the sack was just supposed to have the name of the quilt, the beloved quilt. That was mm. supposed to be it. Yeah. And those other images insisted on getting on the quilt. Yeah. <laughs> no, that That's might awesome. sound strange, yeah. but that will happen. When you start yeah. engaging with that art, you can't just do what you want to do. And I've noticed right. that over and over. You have to listen to what the art is saying, for, saying to you, or you never will finish it. Mm-hmm. For example, there's a dog on the quilt, Hill Boy. Now, when I was making that sack, Hill Boy was on the opposite side. But that dog barked and barked. I heard it. You wouldn't have heard it probably until I moved him to the place on that sack mm-hmm. where he wanted to be, which was near the house at 124 Bluestone Road. Wow. Well, um, let we only have a minute or two left, so why don't you just briefly talk, because since we mentioned it, talk about the Phoenix Jackson ensemble that you made from Eudora Welty's short story. Um. I made that in 2009. I was participating um, on a program at the Natchez Literary and Cinema Celebration, and they were honoring Eudora Welty that year. So that's when I made the ensemble. Um, And she shows up on Alcorn's campus uh, pretty often, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I said, she came (laughs) last week. Right. And... um, the narrator tells us what she's wearing, and that's what I'm wearing in the photo that mm-hmm. I sent to you. She's wearing a dark and light striped dress that goes to her foot. She's wearing an apron with a big pocket that goes to her foot. She's also wearing a red rag on her head. Um, she's wearing some unlaced shoes. I have that on. Wow. The only thing that's missing out of that photograph is that umbrella. She was she she was too poor to... Um, she was too poor to buy a cane, so she uses the umbrella. Now, you don't see the umbrella in that photograph, but just because you don't see it does not mean that it's not there. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, bringing literature to life once again, I love that, marrying your work as a professor and your work as a quilter. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you, Jay Janice. I wish we had more time, but it's been great. So I just want to say to our listeners, thank you for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. 
Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. 